Amen. That Psalm 115 is uh, one that we must always keep in mind, especially in our modern culture. We think that because we don't have um, little statues and statuettes and other idols that the ancient cultures had that we're not idolaters. But we are idolaters. The five and a half or six inch device that we carry around with us can be an idol. The ideologies and philosophies of this world can be our idols. But as God's word testifies here in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. I'm sorry, God is in heaven, rather, and he does whatever he pleases, but the idols are works of men's hands, and that means that they are futile because man's hands did not make the heavens. So as I pray this morning, I'll be praying for this, um, not looking to the idols of our culture, not looking to other idols of material things or material wealth or uh, social media clout. Those are all idols. They're all foolish. But may we look to and trust in the God who is in heaven, the sovereign God who does whatever pleases him. With that being said, let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning looking to you because we are idols. We're idolaters, rather. We have a tendency to look to the things of this world to, to satisfy us. We have a tendency to look to people, to look to man for our significance. Lord, we fashion idols after ourselves. We worship created things rather than the created God. We worship likes and follows on social media we worship the chance to go viral so that we can be uh, Instagram famous or TikTok famous or YouTube famous we, we, we seek to be worshipped we seek to be adored by man and Lord we also seek out people to worship we also seek out people to adore We seek out fallen man to, to be light and to, to emulate ourselves after. Lord, we can make an idol out of success. Whether it's athletic success or academic success or a success on our jobs. Success in how our family or our relationship looks to the world and how our family, our marriages look to the world. We can, we can seek uh, success in that. So that people can look to us and worship us or, or we make idols out of what people think of us or think of our relationships or think of our marriage or think of our children. Lord, our hearts, as uh, John Calvin said, the great reformer, our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts constantly manufacture idols. And Lord, your word tells us 
that our idols are silver and gold. They, they, are, they are nothing. They are the work of men's hands. Lord, our idols are, are helpless in bringing us the true hope that is found in Christ. Our idols are impotent. They cannot save. They cannot redeem our soul. Lord, we constantly look out instead of looking up to you. We constantly look out for idols. And sometimes we even worship ourselves. We believe the lie of the world that, that loving ourselves is the greatest ideal. To reach our highest uh, potential is our greatest goal. Self-actualization, being our most authentic self, being our best self. That is what the world calls out for us to do. In other words, being our best idol, being our best God, small g God. But Lord, your word tells us that this is foolish because our idols have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot handle. They have feet, but they cannot walk. And Lord, the sad thing is those who make them are like them. We are just like the idols that we create. In other words, our idols are helpless, so we are helpless. Our idols are foolish, so we are foolish for going after them. And everyone who trusts in them are just like them. And Lord, all of us are guilty of trusting in the worthless idols of this world the worthless idols of our culture. The Lord, your word calls us, as it called Israel in those days, to trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. To trust in the Lord, to Aaron, because he is our help and our shield. You who fear the Lord, you who fear the Lord within the sound of my voice, trust in the Lord. He is our help. And our shield. Only God can help us, not our idols. Only God can protect us, not our idols. Our idols will always let us down. Lord, forgive us for turning to the idols of this world, the ideologies, the worldviews that are opposed to you the ideologies, the philosophies of this world that lead us away from worship of you, but to worshiping ourselves and worshiping created things and worshiping ideas that are opposed to your word. And Father, we know that you know what's best for us, that you are the only one who is worthy of our worship. Lord, may we say with the psalmist, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And Lord, my prayer also this morning, we pray for the families who lost loved ones in the shooting at the church in Vestavia Hills this past uh, week. We pray, Lord, that the comfort of the saints be with those families. And also the comfort of the saints be with the family of the man who 
committed such a heinous crime? Not just killing three people, Father, but doing it in the house of the Lord. Lord, I pray that you call him to repentance, that as he's in jail right now, that someone may minister the gospel to him, that someone may minister to him that, yes, he's committed a great crime, but, Father, there's still forgiveness, there's still redemption in and through Jesus Christ, that his soul can be redeemed. Yes, he has to bear with the earthly consequences of his sin, but, Father, he can still be justified in your eyes. By confessing, by repenting, turning away from his sin and turning to Christ and being saved. And Lord, bless that church <clears throat> that they may be a gospel witness to that community. That they may be a faithful gospel witness in this time of grief to all the families and to the families of that church and father we pray also this morning that you would convict men of sin of righteousness and of judgment to come father we pray that you especially convict the human heart of the sin of not believing in the lord jesus christ Throughout all of our churches, Father, as the gospel is preached here at the Living Church, at ABC, at Grace Fellowship, at Redeemer, at Christian Fellowship, at Iron City, at Mountain View, at First Baptist Lineville, and all other faithful men, Lord, that as we preach, that you may convict the human heart of the sin of not believing in Christ. Lord, make your priest's word very clear to the heart that not believing in Jesus is the highest act of hostility against you father and that the rejection of you is dangerous to the soul it is the highest crime against the great king Lord we pray that you may save to the utmost this morning as your word is preached and Father, I pray that you help me to preach this text this morning as we close out this wonderful book of yours in your word, the book of Esther. That, Lord, you may encourage the faithful as we look at how you turn situations around for the favor of your people. Lord, just bless us by your word, by the sweet Holy Spirit, through the sweet Holy Spirit. Reveal Jesus Christ to the troubled heart. And let there be the peace of God through faith as the message is preached today. Lord, there are many more things that I could pray for this morning, but you know them all. And as the word is preached, Father, I pray that you meet the needs of your people. Send your spirit, Father, to illuminate your truth this morning. Show us the glory of Christ, the glory of your kingdom. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Let us turn to Esther.
we're in our final message. We've been in this book for the last eight weeks. And this is our last sermon in this book. I meant to mention this earlier, but our, new, our next sermon series will be on the parables of the kingdom, the parables of Jesus and Matthew, and the uh, sermon calendars out on the table out there. Uh, for those who were not here Wednesday night, I, I uh, announced that those were out there. So before you leave today, make sure you get a uh, calendar. We'll be in the parables for the next few months, I think until October. I think the first or second Sunday of October. And after that, we're going to go to a short ser sermon series on the Protestant Reformation. And then we'll, uh, we're praying about going through uh, one of Paul's letters uh, this uh, winter, November, December, January. So I'll be praying for that. But just don't forget to get a uh, sermon calendar. Uh, we'll be starting in the parables of the kingdom and uh, the gospel of Matthew uh, starting um, next Lord's Day. Amen. We're at the end. I pray that as we've gone through this book that you all have seen and understood more the doctrine of the providence of God and how God works even when it seems as if he is not present. As we learned in this book uh, early on, the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in here. But God has his handiwork all throughout this narrative. And just because God is absent doesn't mean that he's not there. And that's one of the greatest things I hope that we take from this book. Chapters 8 and 9 talks about how um, the Jews destroyed their enemies. We're not going to read uh, both chapters but they destroyed all their enemies. And then afterwards they had a feast of Purim, which is found toward the end of uh, chapter 9. It talked about how Mordecai was elevated to basically prime minister, second in charge under uh, King Ahasuerus. And so we see this taking place where the tables were turned. And that is actually the name of our message this morning, that the tables are turned, that God turned the tables the Jews they took vengeance on their enemies within the empire and so we see that that Haman's ten sons were hanged as vengeance this was a divine vengeance by the way that was taken up by the Lord's uh, people and then the Jews that were in Susa in the capital they gathered together and killed uh, 300 men at Susa but they did not take their plunder. They did not take their goods from them, their uh, material goods from them. And we'll explain why. And then the Jews throughout the whole province, they protected their lives. As it says in verse 16, they killed 75,000 of their enemies. And then they had a feast of Purim to celebrate their victory over their enemies. And they did certain things. Uh, during this, this feast where they fed the poor, they gave gifts, and all those other things. And then the book ends with Mordecai's advancement in chapter 10, where it says in verse 3, parenthetically, that Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus. 
and was great among the Jews and were overseen by the multitude of his brethren seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to his countrymen. So God made him great. So we see that the tables were turned at the end. So we're going to answer our questions this morning as we have been doing throughout the whole sermon series. What is the author's purpose? It is to show that the unseen God turns the tables on the enemies of Israel for his glory and that he causes his people to celebrate and remember his works. That is the purpose. To show the unseen God turn the tables on the enemies of his people. For his glory it is always remember always for his glory. And that God causes his people to celebrate and to remember his works. It is God who gives his people joy in doing that. What does God want to accomplish through the author? That despite his hidden nature, God is working his purposes out. He works with human behavior and responses to him. He protects and saves his people, and he causes his people to celebrate. And a one-sentence summary as seen in this passage is that through divine providence, the unseen God turns the tables against the enemies of God and gives them cause to celebrate in their God. The unseen God turns the tables. What values do we see in this passage that are uh, useful for us today? Number one, tables turned. For us, God can, according to the counsel of his will, as we just read in Psalm 115, God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God can, according to his counsel, the counsel of his own will, turn the tables on the enemies of his people for his glory and for his redemptive purposes. God can turn the tables if it is his sovereign will to do so. In our lives, in our nation, in our world, God can turn the tables on his enemies, on the enemies of his people. We should always remember that. Saints, we're never without hope with God. He can turn the tables. He's mighty enough to do that. Number two, commemorating God's work. The Jews commemorated God's work in giving them victory over their enemies. We should commemorate God's work in and among us today. How is God working in our lives? How is God working in the lives of his saints, working in the life of his church, in the life of his people? That is something that we should always commemorate, something we should always celebrate, something that we should always keep in mind. What is God doing among his people? What is God doing among us? What is God doing in your life? It is something that we should commemorate. What has God done in your life? What is he doing right now? We should commemorate that. 
we should never forget what God is doing in us, for us, through us, for his glory. Because the opposite of that is to be ungrateful and unthankful for the work of the Lord, for what God is doing. Another value that we see that is of use for us today is exalting the humble. Remember, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Mordecai's promotion to the king's second in command demonstrates how God gives grace to those who are humble. We ultimately see this in Christ, as Paul wrote so eloquently in Philippians, the second chapter. That Christ humbled himself. He condescended. He humbled himself even unto death, death on the cross. And Paul says that God gave him, therefore God gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on things above the earth, things on the earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The humiliation of Christ led to the exaltation of Christ. And in Mordecai, we see a picture of that. In the humiliation of Mordecai, remember, it was Mordecai who exposed the plot of the two eunuchs to kill the king, but it was Haman instead who was exalted instead of Mordecai. So Mordecai went five plus years without being recognized for that work until the king was sleepless one night. Remember that story in his book. He was sleepless and he asked one of his men to bring in the chronicles of the kingdom and he read where Haman had saved the king's life and he sought to give him honor and he said, uh, asked Haman, what shall he do for this man? And Haman told him, he should do and that man was Mordecai and now we see the completion of the exaltation where God had uh, caused the king to exalt Mordecai to second in command because why God gives grace to the humble those who are proud always meet their comeuppance as they say they always get their just desserts they always get knocked down. God knocks down the proud. He knocks down the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And that's what we see. God exalting the humble. So the big idea is that as believers. We worship a God who will ultimately turn the tables on his enemies and give his people cause to celebrate his works. The enemies of God in our culture, in our nation, in our world, they will not win. They may seem to be winning right now in destroying our culture, destroying our nation, trying to destroy our children trying to continue to allow for or, or fight for babies to be murdered in their mother's womb trying to destroy our children through uh, all types of sexual perversion and rebellion against God 
they seem to have the upper hand. But we serve a just God who will destroy his enemies. Observations on the text. So God turns the table in the Jews' favor in several ways in this passage. We're just going to look at this observationally. First, the tables are turned on their enemies in Susa, which is the capital, and throughout the Persian Empire. We see this in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9, the 12th month of Adar and the 13th day. When a decree was to be executed, what happened? The enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But the opposite occurred, as it says here in verse 1, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces. And no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of all the provinces, the governors, all those that did the king's work, they helped the Jews because of the fear of Mordecai had fell on them. So these people helped the Jews fight their people. All the rulers of the provinces were Persian. They were not Jewish. And these men helped the Jews fight against their own people. Why? Because the fear of the man of God, the fear of Mordecai fell on them. They feared the God of Mordecai more so than Mordecai himself. They feared the God whom Mordecai worshipped. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Why do you think that happened? Because of the hidden providence of God. God made this man great. Just as God made Joseph great when Joseph was sold into slavery God made Joseph great it was God who did that God made Daniel great under uh, Babylon in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar and Darius God made Daniel great so God made them great so it was God who made Mordecai great and so because of that the tables were turned it says in verse 11 on that day the number of those who were killed in Susa was brought to the king and the king said to uh, Queen Esther the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Susa and the 10 sons of Haman what have they done in the rest of the provinces? So word is spread to the king that the Jews were on the attack. They wanted the defense rather. They were defending themselves. The tables were turned on the enemies of God. And then next the tables were turned on Haman's family. Verses 13 and 14. 
It's, it's like a series of events that's, that's just happening. This victory is playing out in all different areas of the kingdom. So we see Haman's family get their just punishment in verse 13 and 14. Esther said, if it pleases the king, because the king asked her, what shall he do with uh, Haman's family? What is your petition? What is your further request? It shall be done. Now he gained the trust of the queen and the queen gained the trust of the king. So she go to him anytime now and, uh, you know, ask the request without him extending the golden scepter to her. He just asked her, what else do you want, queen? What else do you wish to be done? And she said, what? Let it be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. And so the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Susa, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. This was to be a public display of his sons being hanged. So this was Haman's family. At first it was Haman, then his wife, and now his sons. Why? Because it was Haman who plotted to have the Jews annihilated. And now God's divine justice has turned the tables on his family. Next, we see the tables are turned from defeat to victory. We see in verse 17 through 19 how the tables were turned. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Why? Because it was on this very day that they were supposed to be what? Destroyed. We see that back in chapter 3. That they were supposed to be destroyed on this day, but instead, guess what? They were celebrating victory. They were facing certain defeat. They, they had no way of knowing friends that this was going to happen they didn't know they knew that once the king decreed something that guess what it had to come to pass it had to happen they had no foreknowledge they're not God they were perhaps preparing to be destroyed on that day but what did God do instead he turned their certain defeat to certain what victory the Jews who were at Susa assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th day and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwell in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presence to one another so there was great celebration among them I can only imagine how great it was because they thought that they were going to be destroyed utterly by this people but what did God do instead he turned the tables from defeat to victory 
the, the tables are turned from what? Sorrow to celebration. Mordecai wrote these things in verse 20, sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from the enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. Isn't this great? This is what God decreed his people to do. When victory happened, you what? You celebrate. Your sorrow is turned to joy. Your sorrow is turned to celebration. Do you know this is a slight picture of the sorrow of sin and the celebration of salvation? That when God saves us, he turns that misery of sin, that misery of being under God's wrath, that misery of facing certain judgment and eternal torment forever. God turns that sinner's sorrow into a saint's joy. And it is cause of celebration when a soul is saved. When someone comes to Christ and confesses, repents, and turns and is saved, that is a cause for great celebration. When we hear people coming to Christ, our heart should burst with joy. We should celebrate with them because, man, they were under the wrath of God. As Paul says, they were children of wrath. They were destined for eternal conscious torment forever and ever where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when God saves that soul, when God saves them, that sorrow turns to celebration. That sorrow turns to joy. The Pentecostals a lot, they sing this song about turning our sorrow into dancing. I think sometimes we can lose that. Not necessarily dancing because we don't want to embarrass ourselves, but <coughs> just the sentiment of, of, of the sorrow of, of sin and the joy of salvation. We don't boast in it, but we can thank God for him saving us. We can't be so stoic and, 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 and so stiff that we can't say, Lord, thank you for saving me. I, I praise you for that because what's the alternative? Every now and then we should, we, we should break out in celebration. Lord, thank you for saving me. It wasn't me who saved myself. No, Lord, thank you for electing me. Thank you for choosing me. You didn't have to. You didn't have to choose anyone. You know, R.C. Sproul, you know, he's asked this question. I love the way he answers some questions. You know, someone asked him, why does God choose some and not others? And R.C. Sproul said, why does God choose anyone at all? Because guess what? 
he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to elect anyone to salvation. God, God doesn't need us. He doesn't have a need to save us. He's not, he's not some lonely deity that's longing for sinful human companionship. No, God is within himself. God is contained within himself. He, he relies on nothing outside of him or no one outside of him. That's why he is the I am who I am. He's the self-existent God. He doesn't need another. He doesn't rely on another. He is self-contained. He is within himself. So for him to save someone is an act of his grace according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't do it because of any actions that we have. He does it because he's a gracious and loving God. So in that context, with that in, in, in mind, we should praise God for saving us. From the certainty of hell. Because hell does exist, by the way, just in case you didn't know. E uh, conscious eternal torment is a reality for those who reject God. And those of us in the family of God, those of us who are his children through faith in Christ, we have cause to celebrate because he took us out of the sorrow that sin brings amen because sin does bring sorrow it does number four the tables are turned I'm sorry five the tables are turned from humiliation to exaltation this is found in the 10th chapter with Mordecai Again, we read it. The king imposed tribute or taxes on the land. All the acts of power of his great might and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? Of the kings of Medea and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second. This is big. You have to understand, Ahasuerus was a pagan. He was a pagan. Just as Pharaoh was a pagan uh, over Joshua. I'm sorry, over Joseph. Pharaoh was a pagan. But Pharaoh made that Hebrew man, Joseph, his prime minister in essence, his second in command. And we see King Xerxes or Ahasuerus did the same thing. He was second to King Daniel was the same way in the Babylonian Empire. What do those three men have in common? God was with them. And God turned the humiliation that uh, Mordecai experienced as we talked about earlier into exaltation. It says he was great among the Jews and well received by the multitudes of his brethren. So this is God's doing. He takes the humble and he exalts them in his own way. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 23 and 12. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled or abased or put down. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's why we talked about a few Sundays ago, pursue humility. Don't be prideful. God puts down the pride. Whoever exalts himself, whoever thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, God will do what? Put him down. He will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what we see in Mordecai. Mordecai didn't clamor because uh, the king had uh, elevated uh, Haman over him. He didn't, he didn't go around complaining about it. It was, it was Haman who went around complaining because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. <laughs> complaining to his family and his friends and, and, and came up with this plot to kill all the Jews just because one man didn't bow down to him. He was the one full of pride. Although Mordecai was overlooked, he remained humble and scripture testified that he didn't say a word about it, about being passed over for exposing a plot that would claim the king's life. And do you know that I think uh, about nine, ten years later after the events of Esther that uh, Xerxes was assassinated. Uh, it's about nine or ten years later, I think. I read in one of my commentaries that he was he was assassinated about ten years later. But look what God did. God turns the tables from humiliation to exaltation. So let's look at our uh, four principles here. God, number one, is working his purposes out. One of the purposes of this book was to show that though God is unseen, that he is actively working his purposes out throughout this whole narrative, throughout this whole book. His purpose was the redemption of his people to fulfill his covenant with Abraham and with David. That was the purpose. Because think about it. Had Haman's plot come to pass, there would, be, there would have been no Jewish nation. And the lineage of Christ would have been cut off. And also God would have been unfaithful to the covenant that he made with Abraham in Genesis 12 and David in uh, 2 Samuel, the 7th chapter. I was just reading over that last night, the covenant that God made with David. There will never fail to be a king on his throne. Jesus himself, the son of David. Jesus sat uh, on David's throne. That's why he's called the son of David. He was the fulfillment of that covenant that God made with David. That there will never be, there will never fail to be a king on his throne. And guess what? Jesus is still reigning as king. He's seated right now at the right hand of the Father, reigning. 
because of the covenant promise that God the Father made with Abraham. So God worked his purposes out in saving the Jewish people. Number two, God works with human behavior in response to him. Throughout this narrative, throughout this book that we've seen, that we've read, we see that God worked through King uh, Ahasuerus and Haman, who were both pagans. That God worked through the eunuchs who were killed for plotting to kill. Think about this. God worked through those eunuchs who plotted to kill the king. Why? Because when the king read the Chronicles again, five years later, he read about that plot that Mordecai had exposed. Had he not exposed that plot, perhaps the king would have never known to honor Mordecai. And had he not honored Mordecai, then Esther perhaps would not have gone before the king. Why did she go before the king? Because Haman had made that plot. You see how all that worked together? That was all the providence of God. God works with human behavior and the responses to him. He also worked through Esther and Mordecai. Each person was under the superintendence of God. This, is, this wasn't a series of coincidences. No. It wasn't a stroke of bad luck. No. It was God, the unseen God, working through these people. Next principle, we see that God saves and protects his people. Ultimately, God works to protect and save his people for his glory and for the sake of fulfilling his covenant promises. His ultimate promise of protection and saving his people are fulfilled in Christ. Who would not have been if Haman's plot had not been exposed. God's ultimate protection, protecting his people from sin, from the ravages of sin, protecting his people from the fear of, of death, hell, and the grave, and saving his people from their sins, saving his people from the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those were ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but perhaps had not, would not have been so had Haman's plot been successful. So that is how the Lord works. And number four principle, God causes his people to celebrate. We see at the end of chapter nine that the feast of Purim was instituted. And this feast was in celebration of God giving the Jews rest or relief from their enemies and turning them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday as we see in verse 22. Because it is God who gives his people the heart to celebrate his goodness. God gives his people the heart to do that and that's what he did here. He causes his people to celebrate. Verse 
as my old folks used to say, ain't God good? <laughs> he is good. He causes his people to celebrate. He gives us a reason to celebrate. So what are the implications? Gospel implications. In Esther, in this book, it's kind of summarizing everything, you know, as far as implications are concerned. We're reminded of God's goodness to his people. First Chronicles 16 and 34. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 107, 1 through 2, again, says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy. Who in here has not experienced the goodness of God? No one should raise their hands. All of us have experienced the goodness of God. You're experiencing the goodness of God right now because you're sitting here. Oh, you don't think so? I was telling um, my son this morning, I went for a leisurely two-mile walk. <laughs> and I went down to the park, down to Golden Springs. I walked down to the park and around one time and back. And I saw a vehicle in the parking lot. It was like an Isuzu Trooper, I think. And, you know, I'm walking by it, and I saw two people in there, a man and a woman, sleep. They, you know, they were kind of reclined in the uh, seat, front seat, and there was some junk in the back seat and some junk in the back part, back cargo area. Window slightly cracked, and the vehicle was off, of course. They were, they were knocked out. They didn't have a place to stay. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. It is, the mer- it is by the mercy of God that you're here right now and that I'm standing before you right now. It's a mercy of God. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we do to earn it. There's nothing that we can do to deserve God's mercy. Why? Because there's nothing good in us. There's none who does good, no, not one. All that we have comes because of the mercy of God. And because of that, we can say, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. We're not good. God is good. We don't deserve anything from God. We don't deserve any good that happens to us. We deserve no good that comes upon us. It is all, that's why we give thanks to God. If so, if we deserve it, we can say, oh, give thanks to me, for I am good, and my mercy endures forever. No, we give thanks to the Lord because he is good. We are reminded in Esther about the goodness of God to his people. The Jews didn't even deserve it. Because even when they came back from exile, as we read in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, they still fell in sin against God by 
marrying the foreign women. Nehemiah had to contend with that. The people still sinned even when they came back. They didn't deserve it, but guess what? God was good to them. God is good to us. You may not be sleeping in a California king, but you didn't sleep on any pallets, did you? You're not sleeping in your car like that couple that I saw at the park this morning. I'm sure all of our refrigerators were full when we looked in them, or at least had something in them. And our freezers were probably full. And look in the, look in the pantry shelves, and you had cans of stuff and, and containers of, of, of different food items. It may not be what you want, but it's what you need. It's something. It's better than nothing. You're not starving. God is good, but we could be so ungrateful and so unthankful to God. I don't want that. Like my dad used to say, if you don't like it, starve. (laughs) But God is so good to us and we're so ungrateful. We're so unfaithful. We're so sinful. We don't thank God for anything because we have an entitlement mentality with God Lord forgive us and Esther we're reminded of God's goodness to his people we see it that God preserved them and what did they do they celebrated I'm a country boy I'm from Tuskegee Alabama I'm not a city slicker I can make food out of cornbread and peas. Mash that cornbread up in them black-eyed peas and those pinto beans, and I'm good. I don't even have to have no meat with it. I just eat it just like that and be, and be full and be happy and be grateful and say, thank you, Lord. We have to think about those things and be grateful. Now, I'm going to tell you now, this morning when I was on, on Walmart, I'm, I'm thinking about how privileged I am. I'm on a Walmart app ordering groceries to be delivered to my house. I mean, I'm like, Lord, this is, um, this, this is ridiculous that, it, that, that, that I'm this blessed that I can do that. But, man, those prices were just making my eyes water. <laughs> I'm serious. I was, I, was, I was getting so frustrated. I said, I ain't buying that. If they want that, they better buy it themselves. The water, the 40-pack of water is like $2 more. The 40-pack of water from Walmart is like $2 more. It's like $5 and something. I'm serious. I was like, I was, I was getting frustrated. I, I started praying. I said, Lord, forgive me. I, I, Lord, forgive me. This, this, is just, this is just too much. But I had to, I had to recenter my, my thoughts. I had to recenter my thoughts and I said Lord thank you that I'm still able to buy some of this stuff but some people are not able to I had, I had to re- I had to recenter myself 
and, and not be ungrateful and not be complaining. It's okay to complain but not be a complainer. But I'll just, I just said, Lord, just forgive me for, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I am on my phone ordering, you know, groceries from Walmart to be delivered to my house later on because I paid $95 a year for the Walmart Plus membership. I had no reason to complain. A lot of people are not are able to do that. We can fail to see God's goodness. We have to ask God to forgive us for that, to repent of that, and not be a complainer or be ungrateful. And these Jews in here, they could have complained about the edict and and the fact that they were under this fear of being annihilated on this certain day. But what did they do? They defeated the enemies and they did what? They celebrated. And so we see God's goodness being celebrated. I mean, number two implication is in Anessa, we're reminded that Christ's humility, which was the cross, was a means of his exaltation. Christ's humility was the cross. Cursed is the man who dies on a tree. The humility of Christ was demonstrated in the cross. The shame of the cross. The agony of the cross. The rejection, the scorn that the cross brought to Christ. The Bible says that he was despised by man. He was rejected and despised. They plucked out his beard. They gave him gall, you know, bitter water to drink. They pierced his side. They drove nails through his wrists and ankles. They mocked him. They spat on him. They yelled, crucify him. They mocked him. That was the humiliation that our Savior received. He humbled himself that he may be exalted. And I said earlier, Paul talked about this in Philippians, the second chapter, that the humiliation of cross was meant for his exaltation. That made the glory of his raising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father even more glorious. As the writer said in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That joy was what? His ascension, his, his being back where he was before, seated at God's right hand. But before that was the humiliation of the cross. And in Esther, we were reminded through Mordecai, the humility was a means of exaltation. The humility of Mordecai was a means of his exaltation. It made his exaltation even more glorious and more worth it because of the humiliation that he and his people received at the hands of Haman. But God exalted him. Amen. Number three, we're reminded in Esther that God turns our mourning over sin or mourning over suffering into joy. 
Matthew 5 and 4, blessed are those who mourn. And this mourning in this beatitude is not those who are sad, but those who mourn over sin. For they shall be comforted. Those who mourn over their sin will be comforted. He turns our mourning into joy. As I said earlier, those who are saved knew how it was to be mourning over sins. And those who mourn in their sufferings, guess what? God turns our suffering into joy. If not in this life, in the life to come. Paul talks about our light affliction, which lasts but for a while. This affliction that we endure in this earth, in this flesh, in this sinful flesh, in this sinful world, it is a light affliction in comparison with eternity, saints. Sometimes we have to recenter our thoughts on eternity. Like I said last week, uh, after going to my aunt's funeral uh, last Saturday, you know, when I'm at funerals, especially of, uh, you know, she was a saint, she died in the Lord. So when I'm at funerals of, 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 of dead saints, it always recenters my thoughts on eternity. Always. It always recenters me to have a eternal perspective, to think in, in um, the context of eternity. That our time on this earth is ever so brief. It's ever so brief. The problem that people have, and sometimes Christians can fall into this trap, <laughs> is we try to make earth our heaven. We try to make earth our heaven. Now, God does give us his creation to enjoy. He gives us all things richly to enjoy. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. He created this world for us to enjoy. To enjoy nature. To enjoy things that he has gifted man to create. From the things that God created. He gives us people to enjoy, relationships, children, uh, relatives, co-workers, jobs, whatever the case may be. God has given us all these things richly to enjoy. But the ultimate joy, the ultimate joy comes in knowing Christ. Those who unsaved through common grace they get to enjoy these things but deep down inside guess what they're sorrow in their soul they're miserable but when God saves them he takes that sorrow and turns it into joy and we're reminded of that in the book of Esther and then the last implication is in Esther we're reminded that ultimately God will defeat amen and subdue all his enemies and the enemies of his people in the end God wins Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15 and 24 then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under 
Zacchaeus feet. The enemies of God in our nation, in our world, they will ultimately be defeated. But Lord, they're getting away with everything. They're doing it and everything. They, they are having their way. They're turning this world, they're turning this nation upside down, Lord. Look at them. Look at what they're doing from the White House all the way down. Lord, they're, they, they have the upper hand. They're getting all the attention. They're getting all the acclaim. They're getting all the praise while they say uh, the Christians are hateful and bigoted and transphobic and homophobic and all these other fake phobias that they say we are, Lord. We, we're just so the most unloving people. Lord, it looks like they're, they're winning. looks like they have the upper hand. For he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet. God will defeat his enemies. First of all, they're already defeated. But when he comes back, he's going to crush them. He's going to crush all of his enemies. All of them. They will be destroyed. That's what we have as a real hope. Remember the writer in Hebrews, the ninth chapter says, It is appointed unto every man wants to die. And after that, judgment. Uh, unless they repent they're going to be crushed under the heel of God and thrown into the lake of sulfur fire and brimstone to be tormented it's not going to be no big party down in hell <laughs> they're not going to be down there drinking and carousing and having a good time and piling it up no it's going to be crying it's going to be weeping it's going to be gnashing of teeth it's going to be sorrowing and mourning and crying out forever and ever and ever God is going to subdue his enemies. He's going to crush them. He already crushed death. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We don't have to fear death, Christian. Because we know that it's not the end. You're just sending me to be with my father sooner or actually at God's appointed time. <laughs> you're getting me out of this dreadful and sinful world. And you're actually putting me in a better place. <laughs> a place that has been prepared for us since eternity past. Amen. Last three applications here. Respond to God's goodness with joy. We talked about this earlier. 
Praise God for his goodness toward us. Just take moments out of your day, out of your week, to just praise the Lord for his goodness. God is so good to us. Respond to Christ's exaltation with worship. Christ is worthy of our worship. He is exalted. He rules and reigns right now as our advocate. He pleads for us. He defends us against Satan's accusations. He intercedes for us. Christ prays for us when, you know, through the uh, Holy Spirit. When we, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, we don't always know what to pray. But the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. And Christ intercedes for us. He prays for us. And respond to God's generosity with petition, with, with prayer. Petition God. Lord, thank you for your generosity towards us. May the Lord bless us through his word. Let us pray. Father, I pray that we've taken away some great things from this book. That we've seen most of all. That though your hand is not seen. It does not mean that you're not there. It does not mean that you're not acting. Lord, you are the acting God. You are the moving mover, as R.C. Sproul famously said. You're always acting on our behalf. You're always active in our lives. Lord, forgive us for the times where we don't want to see that, or we don't acknowledge it. Father, forgive us for the times where we don't express thanks to you, but we rather complain about our lot in life. Lord, give us hearts of thanksgiving and joy. And Lord, I pray for our unsaved loved ones who are right now experiencing the misery of sin. The misery of living in rebellion against you. Lord, that you turn their hearts to you in salvation grant them repentance that they may turn to you and be saved Lord and experience the joy of salvation that they may experience the joy of being in you and being your child and Lord I pray that you encourage us as saints encourage believers to see your handiwork to see that you're at work, to know that you're at work. To know, Lord, that you're always looking out for us. And Lord, ultimately let us see the humility of Christ, how he condescended, died a cursed death, but rose in all glory and exaltation. May we see Christ, may we center Christ center his glory and look to him as always for he is our eternal hope in Christ's name I pray amen